Okay, Polly, go ahead with your next question. Thank you, Oliver. Uh, Tom, maybe one question to the previous uh, question. Uh, if I intend in, in cases where I may find some tricksters or, or some beings that make uh, fun of others, uh, if I intend to have, um, for example, to, 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 be, to at all instances of what is happening, I should decrease the entropy of the system in the long run. Would you say that uh, covers most of, uh, let's say, interference for from other not so well-being, uh, so well-meaning beings? Uh, maybe, maybe not. The problem with that is what might what might decrease the entropy of the system in the long run might be to give you a very hard problem in the short run. In other words, one of the things you may have to learn is. Uh, it's going to cause a little pain for you in the short run. In the long run, that may be good for the system because they're going to give you a real hard time. And what you're going to learn is, I'm never do, going to do that again. I'm going to be more specific, you see. And then once you learn that, maybe the entropy of the system will go down a little. So it may be a little too general. I'd be a little more specific of what you want and, and why you why you want it. That's general enough that almost any experience you get, painful or joyful, can help you end up at a better place, right? You can learn from anything. So if it's give me something I can learn from to reduce my entropy, well, you can learn from a slap in the face. Somebody walks up and punches you with no reason. You'll learn something from that. It's not something you want to experience, but it's a learning experience all the same. So I wouldn't be that general or that open-ended. I'd want to be a little more specific about, about that. A little too general to say that. It's, it's a good thought, but I, I think it leaves a lot of room for pranks. Okay, thank you. So to my question, it's a bit longer, so uh, please let me know if, if you lost me somewhere. Um, the topic is about uh, perceptual limitations of um, substructures of the individuated unit of consciousness. Um, is it possible that substructures of the IOUC, uh, uh, IOC like subconsciousness or higher consciousness, which are, of course, metaphors, and possibly other parts, have usually limited perception of uh, what is going on in our lives uh, because they lack the concepts and metaphors uh, dictionary to interpret our PMR concepts? Uh, during experiments with one of my uh, more advanced friends here in PMR, he told me that subconsciousness often does not communicate with higher consciousness and um, also that consciousness does not usually communicate with uh, subconsciousness and higher consciousness. Um, if, if it does, then it's not very effective on its own. So um, it is according to him uh, like they would not know each uh, other's addresses in the reality wide web. And even if these uh, parts of the uh, free will awareness units find each other, they apparently may have difficulty communicating because of different levels of VR in which different concepts are used uh, to describe what is happening. Um, it would make sense to me if this is the case because uh, used concepts and metaphors in my dreams and in uh, NPMR communication and experiences seem to be suboptimal uh, for my from my consciousness, uh, conscious point of view, some of the time or even most of the time. So decreasing one's uh, own entropy by creating a communication channel and by improving the concepts and metaphors dictionary between our different substructures 
sort of coalescing into one integrated being. So that would basically be a different way of saying know thyself. And uh, well, so in this case, would you recommend something to those who try to improve the communication between parts of the, their uh, free will awareness unit and um, individuated unit of consciousness? Okay. Um, I think you are overthinking the problem. And okay, we have these we have these metaphors, these structures, various structures, the individual unit of consciousness, and then there's higher selves, and there's oversouls, and there's all these different things that we talk about. Okay, well basically these are metaphors, they're functions. Okay, the consciousness has a cumulative function of lifetime to lifetime, so we call that an individuated unit of consciousness. It has a function of uh, being the uh, player of, a, of an avatar. We call that a free will awareness unit. And it's, you see, we can, so we take the functions and then we make up a, a metaphor that kind of symbolizes that function because that allows us to have conversations because we can talk about the functions of consciousness and we've given each function kind of a name. And we don't want to get too much into the into the idea that these are these are uh, anything's other than functional metaphors, okay? Uh, that sort of thing. Now, that being said, there are various levels to your consciousness and your awareness, okay? Now, you're thinking that various levels may have a communication issue, and I would say that. Any place that it's needed to communicate for the growth of the of the of that IUOC system will happen. If it's not critical to the growth of that system, then it doesn't happen. Okay, so it's it's not like there's a problem here that needs to be fixed. If there's a problem, it will fix itself. It's it's probably true that the various levels and 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 parts of this consciousness system don't routinely communicate. I would agree with that. But I would not agree that that's a problem or a difficulty. It's just the way it is. It's probably because they don't need to. Now, one reason is when you say communicate, you're talking about intellect, your awareness of a communication, their awareness of a communication. See, we think of it, we think of communication in intellectual terms. I say something to you, your intellect works on it, says something back to me. We're communicating but we're communicating at an intellectual level and we're communicating in terms of concepts because most communication that's nonverbal in this physical reality is, is uh, telepathic, which is concepts and paragraphs, not, not linear stuff. So this kind of communications happen when they need to happen, don't happen when they don't need to happen. And the whole process of growing up is not an intellectual process. So it's not that it takes this part to intellectually communicate with that part and that part to intellectually be connected to that part because the growing process isn't really an intellectual process. It's not about what you understand. It's not about your knowledge. It's about who you are, what you are inside, your quality. So the being level is the level at your core of your being. That's who you really are. Your intellectual level is usually the level that's wound up with the fear and the ego because that's the... That's your uh, analytical level. That's your thinking level. And that thinking level is, is not the core part of the process. 
that's that's a level we need that thinking level that intellectual level in order to give us ourselves direction in other words to point you know i'd rather go over here than over there so our intellect creates those choices and those directions so in that way the the intellect can can be a director but just like the director doesn't make the movie it just kind of plans the moves right it's the actors and whatever that actually have to get there and, and deliver the goods in the movie. So it's the same with your intellect. Your intellect isn't really delivering the goods. It's not that these various pieces have to intellectually communicate in order to help you grow up. What helps you grow up really isn't related that strongly to the intellectual connections between anything, including your own intellect. Your own intellect, just as the you know, like I, I mentioned later or earlier to Joe, it's like the zero order perturbation. It's like the main low frequency note that kind of sets the stage, but it doesn't actually do the work. It's not the it's the form factor, I guess. It it can modify the form factor, but it doesn't uh, produce the content. So it's that kind of thing. So your intellect kind of generates the form factor for your growth, but it doesn't actually generate the growth of the content. So for one, a lot of communication at the intellectual level between subsets of your consciousness is not necessary. So that's a good reason why it doesn't happen. And it's not really supposed to happen, doesn't need to happen. And secondly, um, if it does need to happen, it will happen without you, uh, in, you know, without you encouraging it, facilitating it, or being in control of it. It just will happen. So I'd say it's kind of a non-issue that's easy to get kind of twisted up around, feeling like you have some responsibility and something you could do there when it's really not the case. I just let it go. So I wouldn't disagree with your friend that there are various levels in consciousness and they don't really communicate with each other, but I kind of disagree with the fact that we should really care. You know, it doesn't, the system works the way the system's supposed to work and it really doesn't need you or your intellect to make it work. You don't have to be the boss or the director or the CEO. You just have to do your part to help yourself grow up you know, in making the choices that you make here in this virtual reality and all the rest of it will take care of itself. So that's kind of a kind of a, a wrap up of that. It's not really a problem. We can easily get into details and overthink them. It's better just to realize that these are metaphors the metaphors are there for functions, but they don't really describe the mechanics of connections or anything else. And they may not even exist. They're just metaphors. The metaphor helps us. The only reason we have the metaphors is otherwise we can't have a conversation about it. Because we deal in pieces and piece parts because that's what we that's how our mind works, because here we are in this virtual reality that's made up of piece parts. So if we can't talk about piece parts and how they relate to each other, then we really can't talk about a thing and its processes because to us the processes are all piece parts and communications between those piece parts we talk about an automobile it's a not the concept of an automobile that we get into but it's a collection of piece parts that all communicate with each other and all you know connect to each other in very special ways and that's how we see reality so then we think of our consciousness and we want to think of it in terms of piece parts and how those piece parts connect and work with each other in order to get the whole job done. But it's not really like that. That's just our view as virtual reality players. That's the way we have to think in order to communicate to other people. The piece parts aren't necessarily like that. They'll, they will do what they need to do to do their part of the job without 
you're explaining it to them or directing it for them or making it happen. You do your part, which is making good, low-quality decisions, and then all the, the whole system will work well together. So that would be a, my response to that. Probably not the response that you were looking for, but it's, uh, it's the response you got anyway, right? So that's the way. No, I, <laughs> yeah, I, right. I always yeah. like your responses because they give me a brand new view on the whole topic. So I like it. Thank you. Okay. Okay, sure. Go ahead with your next question. Okay, uh, about uh, IUOC deletion. Um, you talk about how from the LCS. Um, are you pretty basically a hundred percent sure that the LCS is sort of intentionally doing the deleting, or do you think it might be possible that because we're talking about entropy and, and disorder, that when they get a, when a certain IUOC gets to a point where they're high enough entropy, do they is it possible that they sort of dissolve? Um, rather than are, are intentionally deleted, or do you, are you pretty certain that uh, they are in fact intentionally deleted by the LCS itself consciously? I suspect that it could go either way. I think it would be kind of difficult to get to the point that you just are uh, so high entropy that you just kind of dissolve, but I suspect that's a possibility. So we'd count that in as a, you know, everything, everything that can happen <laughs> generally does happen to some extent, even the things that are only one in a million, they still happen. They just don't happen as often as the things that are one in 10 or the things that, uh, you know, are a hundred to one. So I would guess that all of the above happens. Some, some entities may just, you know, dissipate to the point that they're no longer able to be effective in the game. And if they're no longer able to be effective in the game of lowering entropy, their entropy would just slowly increase to the point that, you know, they were, totally dysfunctional as players anymore. And at that point, they would be dysfunctional set of random bits that uh, would uh, best be uh, picked up by the system and put back to use somewhere else. Or you can have the situation where you have an entity that is that has just become so dysfunctional, it's creating so much entropy in the system that you really don't want to play them anymore. You know, it's like you're playing World of Warcraft and you've got a, you know, a you've got a character in a game, a barbarian and that's barbarian just seems that every, every time you play this barbarian, you know, you just lose hit points. You just can't seem to keep any, any gains that you make. So you say, well, I'm not good at this character. This character was a poor, I, I, I picked the, the wrong capabilities and the wrong characteristics for this character. Just not working out. I'll go pick another one. I'll make another barbarian, but I'm going to give it different kinds of characteristics, whatever, because the ones it's got just aren't working. So what you do is you turn that first barbarian in and it gets deleted and you make another one that uh, serves your purpose better. And that's part of your learning because eventually you learn how to make barbarians such that they are more effective in gaining their hit points or whatever the goal of your game is. So going up levels, I guess. So you can say the system learns with that as well. And the system's probably pretty smart by now about making IUOCs that uh, have potential for success. So it would be kind of unusual, I would think, for those IUOCs to just disintegrate and go away. Probably doesn't happen very often, but certainly it, it could. So my answer is all of the above. Uh, it just depends on the, on the situation. But we have, to, we have to realize that any system that's using bits for a purpose 
if that purpose isn't being met by those bits, the system has an incentive to take bits that are dysfunctional and return them back to functional work because there's only so many bits. The system is not infinite. The system is finite because it's real. And the system is not going to just throw bits away. Now, it might be very, it might seem like they throw bits away in the sense that if it has so many more bits than it needs, then it won't be very conservative of those bits. It'll just maybe let them, let them go a long time before it reclaims them. Or it may not reclaim any of them. It's like, uh, you know, I put stuff in my uh, trash can on my, on my desktop. I've got this trash can. I just put stuff in there and put stuff in there and put stuff in there. And sometimes I may go six months or a year and never empty that thing. Well, when I empty it, I'm returning bits back to useful use, right? As long as I keep all that trash in there, I got those bits tied up. Why don't I, why don't I get rid of them like every week or something? Well, it's because I got so many bits in my machine that whether I tie up another gigabyte or two with trash just doesn't make a lot of difference because I've got plenty of room for plenty of trash. So that's maybe the other, the system, larger cancer system probably has that same point. If it's got plenty of bits, it probably doesn't delete much. If it doesn't, it would delete a lot more with, uh, you know, what it's least productive bits and we'll put it back into a more productive use. I've never noticed the larger cancer system being tight with its bits. I've always, my experience has always seen that it seems to, it seems to have all the bits it needs and is not too concerned with being parsimonious with its memory or with its, you know, with its uh, capability or even with its processing cycles. I haven't run into a thing where it looked like it was laboring under a load that it was having a hard time dealing with. It seems to be able to deal with any load that I have seen without breaking a sweat. So I don't think it's it's uh, really likely to recycle bits unless it's a an extreme case. Now, if I have a ro- a rogue program that's on my in my you know you know like a, a virus or something that's doing things, now I want to grab that thing and delete it because it's creating problems. I suspect it feels the same way. If it's got an IUOC that's just tearing things up and creating problems, it probably would want to delete it because it's. It's become a dysfunctional part of the of the overall process. As long as that dysfunctional piece looks like it might straighten out and fly right, then it'll probably leave it alone. But I, I know if I've got a virus, it's not going to straighten up and fly right. I know that it's a problem and I need to get rid of it. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I've I've answered at least four or five questions, and hopefully some of them were yours. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. You you answered my question. Um, so the LCS itself is conscious, or is it like a hive mind of uh of all the uh, of different IUOCs, or like who actually is doing the deleting? Okay, that's a good question. Yes, the larger consciousness system is aware and conscious. This is a conscious system. Okay, and it's not just a the larger consciousness system is not just a machine. You know, and we're the only, you know, we IUOCs are the only thing that's conscious in it. And it's just kind of the infrastructure that keeps us going. In order to create a virtual reality, in order to, you know, evolve the the structure and the process that we see here. I mean, making a virtual reality like this one uh, is is not a trivial 
process and then getting it to evolve and then using it uh, the way it is, computing all of this. And this is just one virtual reality. There's lots of virtual realities that this larger consciousness system is juggling all at the same time. So it has to be a, a, uh, an aware system. It's a consciousness system. And that's always one of the variables that people generally don't think of when they're interacting with the larger consciousness system is that the larger consciousness system itself has an intent. And you have to deal with that intent as well as with your own intent and the intent of others out there that you are interacting with. So it, it is a, it is an intelligence system. Now, another way to think about that is it's breaking itself into pieces. And these pieces have different functions, different rules. Okay, our, our part, our rule, our individuated units of consciousness, we're the, we're the uh, you know, the entropy reduction strategy. We go out and have experiences and lower our entropy and, and reduce the entropy of the whole. That's our job. But the, anytime you have a very complex system, you also have to have the executive part of the system, that part of the system that controls and manages everything else. Otherwise, you'd have chaos because if everything just managed itself, yet all these things have to play together and interact and connect, then there has to be a, an executive function that, that uh, you know, there has to be an operating system. Maybe we can put it that way. You know, there needs to be something that determines how things go together. And this particular operating system is an intelligent, aware uh, operating system because it has done very intelligent, aware things like create virtual realities like ours. And uh, in the beginning, it probably wasn't so much like that. In the beginning, it may have just been a thing evolving. More like a machine. But as it got to the point that it developed what we call, you know, what we would call consciousness, then it was conscious. And it was making conscious decisions rather than just uh, decisions based on, uh, you know, random happenings within itself. So yes, it's an aware system as well, and it has its own intent and does things for its own reasons, and we're part of that game. We just are one piece part in a in a much larger system that is a that is something we have to take into consideration. It's not just us and each other, but the executive part has an intent as well. Uh, okay, thanks. Um, where does the power come from um, that it has a finite amount uh, where does it come from you know how does the LCS get more processing power etc okay now the LCS I don't conceive of it as something that has a plug you know into, into some non-physical wall someplace you know like where it's getting it's getting power from it's not a physical system so it doesn't consume powers like you know, our physical system has to consume power because that's the way the rule set works. So we we have to plug our computers in because that's part of the way the rule set works. And that's how we build the computers according to the rule set. The larger consciousness system is just a self-aware system that has a finite capacity to create bits and to keep all these bits uh, you know, in line, if you will, to manage all the bits that it can it can create. I see no limit on that, but I know that it's finite and has a limit because it's a real system. Okay, the word infinity is just an abstraction. There is nothing. There is no thing 
that is infinite. There can be no thing that is infinite. You can only approach, become asymptotic to infinity, but you don't get there. Things, things can't be that way. Real things have to be finite, although they can be so large that from our viewpoint, they appear to be infinite. As in my example, if you were floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in an inner tube, that ocean would look to be infinite from the view of the inner tube. But it's not really. It's just big. So I don't see that it needs an external power source of any sort. It doesn't consume power. It, uh, that's, a, that's a physical reality concept that things need to consume power, and that has to do with our rule set, the way we work. Uh, it's not a physical uh, reality like ours. It just has a certain capacity to keep track of bits and pieces. And as it evolves, that capacity probably grows and grows. And it, it has finite number of bits. What can it do with those? It can only do so much. So it may one day get to the point where it just can't do anything new without throwing something old out. You know, it may get to have to be parsimonious with its bits. I've just never experienced it being that way. I've never had the sense of a system that was worried about how, you know, how efficient it would have to be in a particular step. Now, it is an efficient system because it's an evolved system. And as you evolve, the things that work best and are most efficient stay, and the things that you try to do that aren't so efficient eventually go away. And then if you add intelligence to that, you tend to be able to measure your efficiency and how much resources things are taking, and then you can, you can, uh, you don't just have to wait for things to go away because they're inefficient. You can get rid of them because you know they're inefficient early on. So it doesn't need power. It's not, uh, it's not flipping transistors on and off. You see, that's a physical thing. That requires power. It's electricity flow through transistors that are on or off. It doesn't have a bunch of transistors that are on or off. That's physical. And it doesn't have to have a physical analog. It's just thought. So that comes in with the, the assumption that consciousness exists. This awareness just exists. Now, the mechanics of that don't know, can't know, because a thing cannot be aware of how it's birthed. In other words, you, you can't observe and study your own birth doesn't work like that. So we, we can't, we're part of that larger consciousness system. So because of that, we can't get outside of it to see how the world, how existence might work outside of our consciousness system. We can have conjecture about it, but it's just conjecture. So that, that's the, that's the beyond what we can know, beyond what we have direct access to. So you can maybe have conjecture about how that larger conscious system might operate, uh, but it'll never be more than conjecture. So we're kind of stuck there. It just operates, and that kind of comes in with my first assumption, consciousness exists. And we have to do that because we don't know everything, and we can't know everything because we can only know as much as consciousness within our system can know. Because we're consciousness, we can't get outside of our system of consciousness to look back at it and have a bigger perspective. We can only have the perspective from inside of it. So it's the superset. And if it happens to be a subset of some bigger superset, 
we don't we're not going to get any direct connection to that so it's just one of those things where you have to live gracefully with uncertainty because it's always going to be uncertain there's limits to knowledge depending on where you are in the you know where you are in the in the causal chain there are some things that are beyond your ability to uh, connect to them causally or logically can't move up upstream in the causal chain but so far you can move downstream as far as you can go till you hit the pixel level but running upstream you very soon run out of, of an ability to make connections okay cool uh thank you tom okay polly next question from you you so um Next topic is about uh, mother in spiritual growth. Uh, the topic of mother, in my opinion, usually is very important in pers personal growth. Social psych psychology studies uh, apparently say that the single most influential person in our lives is our mother or somebody acting in that role. We are very much uh, conditioned uh, by our society, but... Uh, most conditioning comes uh, in our early childhood from our mother and father figures uh, when we acquire from them most of our invisible fears, beliefs and expectations. Um, I would like to ask you, how did you cope with uh, this sort of hidden fears uh, on your road to your awakening, especially related to something you acquired probably from your mother and parents? Um, it would be especially interesting to me to hear how you dealt with the influence of your parents and your mother in particular. I believe that many people have the urge to fight the parents' influence when they first discover it in themselves. And uh, often they decide to confront their mothers uh, instead of looking inside themselves. Do you have any suggestions on how to approach this topic? Um, yeah, I have some. Uh... First of all, you asked a question about my own experiences, and I'm probably unusual in this way, but I really didn't have any struggles with dealing with the things that my parents gave to me. I didn't have that issue at all. And I think the more you live in a dysfunctional family, which is kind of the normal family these days, uh, the more of those issues you have. I didn't live in a dysfunctional family at all. My family was entirely functional and there wasn't anything I can think of that was dysfunctional about it. So I didn't get a lot of junk from my parents as far as beliefs and attitudes and things I had to do or be or whatever. I picked up a lot more just from the culture than I did from parents or mother in particular. So I didn't really run into those kinds of things that a lot of people have to deal with. You know, they have to struggle with the things their parents taught them and try to unlearn, you know, a lot of those those things that they learned. And that is a that is a big struggle for probably the average person. How do you go about doing those? It's a lot harder to deal with your fears that are generated when you were one and two years old, you see. It's hard, it's hard to get a hold of those because they're so deep. They're just a part of you. When you look at those fears, you don't see, aha, there's a fear. You say, aha, there's me. And it's, it's not like you can separate that fear out from yourself because that fear is a part of yourself. And it makes it, it, makes it a very difficult, it's like the fish trying to see water. You know, I mean, the fish tries to really 
get a sense of water. Well, water is just water. It's where it lives. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it probably is not, doesn't even perceive water as water. It's just part of its environment, not something that it sees as a separate thing of its own character. Anyway, uh, it's a tricky thing to do, but first what happens is you see the symptoms. I've got these symptoms, you know, I have these fears or this anger or blocks here and there, and you don't necessarily know why, but it's the way you are. So you start with observing a symptom. Once you observe the symptom, you can go back and then you can see maybe where it goes. All right. Every time when I was, you know, little, you know, I got this, or you get this feeling maybe just that, you know, because you have to be like four or five years old, or you can't even say when I was little, such and such happens because you don't even have, you know, memory of that year that you were one and a half or two. Most people don't have memory at that, at that age. So they, they don't get that. I'm one of the exceptions. I do have some memory from those, from those years before, I guess most people have memories, but anyway, so you just have to deal with it as a part of you that you don't particularly want to be that way and try to become different. You have to kind of disassociate me. I am at the being level with this aspect of me that is dysfunctional. You may not be able to name it. You may not be able to say, oh, when I was one or two, my mother just, uh, you know, was hysterical and screamed all the time and was terrified. And I picked up this fear. I picked up this just fear of something's going to get me because my mom was so frightened at that time that I picked this up. And that may be true. And that may be the reason. But if that happened when you were one, or it may have happened while you were still in utero, you know, you're not going to have a, a memory of it, but you will have the symptom of it. Just deal with the symptom. And you do that by making better choices. If there's this thing that's pushing you to run away because of intimacy, say, because you're afraid of what might happen because of the issues that uh, you got from parents. Well, when that, when you get to that fear that says, run away, run away, you just have to say, no, I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to be brave. I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway and see what happens. It might hurt. I'm frightened but I'm going to see what happens without me making the, the belief that it's going to be bad. And you just go do it. And then when you do it, there's a pretty good chance something bad will happen. But it won't just be it happened for no reason. It happened because, well, I tended to be a little anxious and rude and this and that. And that was still part of that fear. Next time, I'll do better. So then you just have the courage to do it again. And next time, you do it a little better. Then you have the courage to do it again. And now we're back to pulling yourself up with the bootstraps. You're just going out there and doing the best you can, even though it's flawed, learning from the results and growing up. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to move forward in life perfectly, not making any mistakes, you know, always doing the right thing. You're supposed to just be however you are, be authentic, move into life, engage, look at the, look at the feedback do it better next time. That takes courage. So you have to have the courage to know that you might fail. You might do it wrong and that's okay, but you'll learn from it. So that's the only advice. It's not an easy problem to beat, 
but it's one that you can overcome just by having courage. It's the only antidote for fear is having courage. So that's a that's a tough reply to give to somebody that has an issue like that they have to deal with. It's well, just have courage. You know, pat you on the butt and send you back into the into the playing field, right? That's easy for the coach to do, but it's a lot tougher for the player that's just been told to stop that four hundred pound, you know, uh, guard, you know, that's coming right through the line. You know, that's your job. Stop that guy. Well, he has two hundred pounds on you, and you're supposed to stop him. Uh, well, you go in and you do your best, and and you. Uh, you know, the chips fall where they may, and you learn from it. And you go out for basketball next year. You're not heavy enough, you know. That's uh, you, you learn your lesson and make accommodations. So that's all I can I can tell you about working problems like that. Uh, not everybody has those problems to deal with, thankfully. And uh, those of you who do, it just takes courage and, and willpower and probably three or four years of your life dedicated to working through it and the courage to just go out and do it even if you think it's going to hurt maybe to mention when one thing that i observe uh, in myself and i probably think that most of the people living uh, have it it's like um, a learned um, attitude to take uh, the responsibility for others uh, emotions basically mothers uh, teaching us that if you do this then i will feel hurt and you are responsible. And uh, I think it is very often that people have this sort of thing and it's hard to really discover it in oneself, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to take responsibility for yourself. And what's even harder than that, you have to let everybody else take responsibility for themselves as well. Thank you very much, Tom. Okay. Shaw, go ahead with your next question. Okay, uh, let me know if uh, you have mic problems, if you can't hear me. Um, so I wanted to get clarity if there's any connection uh, or link between consciousness evolution and biological evolution. Um, so basically, do biological forms in our PMR evolve at like, the same pace uh, as the consciousness? So essentially, my IUOC has enough data to project uh, into a monkey and then you know millions of years you know in the time it takes a monkey to evolve to a human um does my IUOC is that the same amount of time as it would take my IUOC uh to be able to project into a human so basically is there a link between the the speed of consciousness evolution and biological evolution uh do they go at the same pace Yes, there is a uh, Did you, you get that? Yeah, I got all that. Uh, it broke up a little bit, but I, I was able to put all the pieces together, sort of like a, a packet, uh, an email uh, packet receiver here. Anyway, uh, yes, we talked about that a little earlier when we talked about the moth that evolved more quickly than it should have because there was intent. So there is a feedback between the avatar's evolution you know, the, and the, the uh, virtual reality character's evolution and the consciousness because the avatars will modify it to support the consciousness. Now, they only can modify according to the rule set. They can't do things that, uh, you know, that the rule set doesn't allow. But within the limits of the rule set, then they can, they can evolve. So that's mind, ep the epi epigenetics that Polly uh, mentioned. That's the, that's the mind uh, in the feedback loop with the physical. 
and they evolve together. But the the, the fundamental uh, constraint there is the rule set. You have to evolve within the rule set. You can't, you know, we're, we're not going to evolve to be able to float around, you know, without without gravity. That's not in our rule sets, not the way this game works. And that's not a thing that we can, uh, we're going to just evolve to be able to do. Well, certainly not in the short range anyway. So there are constraints on that. So we have both going on at the same time. This evolution of our virtual reality is still ongoing. There are still changes in our environment enough to make, to make, you know, the, Evolution have to change, right? Evolution in our physical reality, in this virtual reality, has to do with procreation and survival. So if we have changes in our environment, then that's going to necessitate changes in the things that are here. And some things will go extinct and other new things will come along. And it's still, a, it's still a, uh, an evolving virtual reality. And along with that, you have all these individuated units of consciousness and whether they're in a monkey, a man or a chipmunk, you know, they are also making choices that will affect the way the system evolves. So like the moth, they're making choices that make that black color come along faster than it would randomly because they're being eaten by things that can see their, their uh, white color against black backgrounds they need to find a dark gray color and they need to find it soon because otherwise their predators are having a, a an easy time making meals of them so we're the same way so it's a it's a cooperative effort between both with the fundamental um uh, modifier being the rule set can only change within the within the rule set now can the rule set ever change well sure it could change you know we we see that World of Warcraft changes its rules sometimes because it finds that gameplay is being stultified by a particular rule or something, so it changes it. But as a game matures, you do less and less tweaking with it, more and more tweaking in the beginning, less tweaking as it becomes a mature thing. Our virtual reality is a pretty mature thing. It's been around here chugging for a long time. Even humanity is several billion years old. And humanity was not one of the first comers on the scene. You know, it was one of the late comers. So it's been going quite a while. And the system, I think, is fairly mature. So you're not going to see a lot of tweaking with the rule set. The rule set's probably reasonably stable unless we change dramatically. But there is a lot. For, for instance, here's a, here's a thing where we're going to have to evolve together. The human animal is like any other animal. It has a lot of hardwiring that we call instincts. And we are not aware too much of our instincts because they're just proclivities. We just do things because they seem like that's what we need to do. Well, those are, those are our instincts. And we have a lot of that hardwiring. But our environment is changing dramatically in the last 300 years, right? We went from a survival mode where everybody was just trying to make it to the next day you know, to get enough to eat, stay alive, to uh, to see another another sunrise come up, to where we have this uh, technological society, where most of us are not that worried about the old things that used to be most important, which was day to day survival. So there's still some of us in that boat, but most of us are not any longer in that boat. So now we've got a whole set of instincts 
that are built into us that have to do with day-to-day -day survival, procreation, mating, all this stuff. And they're all there from 200 million years of this being a very tough environment to survive in and get by in. And here we are in a totally different environment that isn't the, you know, the, uh, that tough anymore. And we're having social problems now because we are maladapted to our present environment with our old hardware. And a lot of things we're struggling with that. And that is uh, just, we'll just have to get over it. We have to continue to evolve, modify our, our uh, genetic um, hardware, our, our uh, hardwiring instincts to better suit the environment we're in now but not modify them so drastic if, drastically that if we had to go back to that, that uh, law of the jungle world we used to live in, that we'd still be survivable. See, we don't want to get so far away from it that we, get, that we uh, make ourselves to where now we're not survivable if things change. Most of the species that go instinct weren't survivable after changes. It was changes in the environment, and they were in it, weren't able to cope. But we're pretty adaptable. But we have to uh, stay within the margins there. But anyway, yeah, it's an ongoing thing. And they both affect each other, and we're still doing it. We're still in the process of, of uh, evolving both the physical world and the, the consciousness world, and they interact with each other. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Tom. Okay, Polly, go ahead. Thank you. So I was interested interested in why it's why there seems to be some sort of exhaustion uh, of uh, the people who are doing channeling communication with beings in in the non-physical reality. Based on my limited view of channeling, it seems to me that people here uh, do get that often, and I was wondering whether it's just something uh, that has to do with their personal beliefs and they make it true or whether there is really some mechanism in the background that uh, limits the time um, somebody can channel or uh, somehow communicate uh, with beings in other uh, levels of reality. It's, uh, yeah, the simple answer to that is mainly their beliefs. It's mainly their attitudes. Um, you know, we have, we have lots of cultural beliefs just based on the way our virtual reality works. And one of those beliefs is that anything you do requires energy and that if you do it long enough, you're going to run out of energy. And we have this idea and some, some mediums, right, we're really talking about mediums, but it's true in anything. We have this idea that we can't get anything if we don't work for it. We can't get anywhere if we don't go do it. You know, if we're in a, if we're out of body, we have to fly to get someplace. You know, these are just beliefs that we, that we have. We don't have to fly. We can just have an address and there we are, you know, it's like teleporting, not flying, but because we believe that you have to go someplace to get somewhere, then we fly because that seems more natural to us. Well, it seems natural to people who have to do something that seems like it's hard because not many people can do it, that they must have to put out a lot of energy or a lot of concentration was the old word, you know, is this so much concentration? Well, most of that is just their belief. That's the way they believe that things have to work. Sometimes in the early days, uh, people would uh, believe the only way they could heal someone was to take that illness 
from that person to themselves. That was just a belief. So they did, and they'd heal a person, then they'd be ill. See? So it was just a belief. But the beliefs are constraints. And I think that's the main thing. All you're doing is shifting a focus of your intent. It doesn't use up physical energy. This idea of concentration is because you've learned that as a tool, just like meditators sometimes can't meditate if they don't have incense burning, you know, a certain kind of mellow music playing, uh, the room has to be dark, and have all these things that have to be there. Otherwise, they can't meditate. Well, all these props are not necessary to the meditation in a fundamental way, but they are necessary to that individual's meditation because they can't meditate without them. They de- they're dependent on those tools because they just need them. You see, they have their rituals that they need. So this concentration idea, you know, well, you're just not concentrating hard enough. Eh, well, grit your teeth and, you know, push harder and maybe it'll work. Well, then you do that and it worked. Well, it wasn't because you grit your teeth and push harder. It was because your mind got into a position at work, but you associated with the grit teeth and the pushing. So now you got to grit your teeth and push all the time. That's become a tool, just like the burning incense and the, and the, and the mood music when you meditate. So we do have people who get exhausted at the end of it, and uh, probably because they believe they need to be. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it right. And if you tell them, oh, just shift, shift your intent, It's easy. You don't have to do all that concentration. Just shift your intent. They wouldn't know how to do that. You see, they can't just shift their intent. It's like, oh, you don't need all that stuff to meditate. Just sit down in a chair and meditate. And they can't do it because they need the paraphernalia there in order to do it because it's their ritual. So that's it. It doesn't really require an output of physical energy in order to run around in the non-physical. We just think it does, and we believe it does, and we create these these tool sets that require it. And besides, it's rather dramatic when it's all done to <laughs> and collapse on the table. You know, that feels like you've really put a lot into it, and your customers feel better that you have given it your all. If you just go, ah, yeah, it's like that, and nobody will believe you because it was too easy, right? If you don't suffer a little, then it's obviously you're faking it. So that's another thing. You need to be credible to people in this reality, and they're not going to give you much credibility if they don't see effort. So you got to make some effort. Otherwise, it's not credible. It's just too easy. You must just be making it up. All those things kind of play play into it. So. A lot of people use a lot of people use rituals and and things that they don't have any idea they're rituals. If you said, you know, do you have any beliefs and rituals that you need? They'd say, no, everything I do is necessary. See, but they don't really know because they can't do it without the the the, the rule or the, the rituals. And to them, it is necessary, and they figure it must be necessary for everybody. And if they teach people, then those people they teach, it'll be necessary for them too, because they'll be taught the rituals. We, we, uh, we as herd animals tend to be more conservative and more, um, you know, we, wanna, we, we want the obvious process. We're not, we're not too abstract in our thinking in general. Abstraction is something people have to learn to, to do. You know, that's one of the big uh, 
hurdles that you have to get across to be a physicist or a mathematician. You have to learn to think abstractly and let go of the concrete moorings of, of uh, you know, your everyday existence and just kind of follow where the logic goes as opposed to where you're, the way it seems where you think it ought to go, you realize eventually that where you think it ought to go is more wrong than right. And you need to just kind of follow the logic that that's better. And that's a hard, that's a hard lesson to learn when you go into math and when you go into physics that you uh, have to learn to live in an abstract world, not just like this world. And graduate students struggle with it. You know, they get into quantum mechanics and they say, well, what's waving? What do you mean a wave function? Okay, this particle has a wave function. What, what's waving? Is the particle bouncing up and down? Is it vibrating? No, no, the particle isn't vibrating at all. Well, then what's its wave function? You know, how does the thing wave? Well, they're trying to make a model that fits their intuitive sense of physical reality, and it just doesn't work. Nothing's waving. There is no wave. This is mathematics, guys. It's just... A system of mathematics, it's a probability wave. It's not a physical wave. And you don't, re you probably, unless you've been through it, you don't realize how many hours graduate students sit in a stew trying to just get over that one problem of dealing with an abstraction that has nothing to do with what they've learned about physical reality. And getting accustomed to that and working with it is a it's a block that's hard to get over. A lot of graduate students run into quantum mechanics and they throw up their hands and they just say, I don't get it. Well, the ones that get it are the ones that stop trying to make sense out of it and go with the abstraction and then they can work it. And they've given up, they've given up the idea of getting it. As long as you have this idea of making it physical somehow, you can't do it. So that's... We get very attached to our ways, our viewpoints and our rituals and the ways of seeing things. And when you get into, you know, consciousness, all of that goes out the window because nothing works like it used to. You know? So when we have a communication, we want to hear somebody speaking English sentences. Of course, if you happen to be French and you're meditating, you want to hear somebody speaking French sentences. And so you do. And it's not because the people out there are multilingual. It's because they're just talking to you in, in uh, telepathic thoughts and you're translating them into the language that you hear it in. So we, we, tend, to, we tend to need what our, you know, again, our, our environment as herd animals is, tends to be uh, very, we're very attached to our, our rituals and, and, and our reality, the way we see it and our beliefs. And it's hard for us to let go of them. I agree. And um, maybe connected to this topic also, I would also think that uh, actually having a better connection with the non-physical reality would uh, even increase our energy, so to speak, basically re revitalize our body and mind. I think there was also one theory of uh, Bob Munro uh, that maybe five minutes every hour uh, in his state uh, would maybe make the sleep obsolete. Yes, it doesn't really make sleep obsolete, but you do get a boost of energy from a good meditation because your body is deeply relaxed and your your consciousness is really deeply relaxed too. So everything just gets to chill for a while. And when you are done with that, it's like you just took a nap. It won't, it won't replace sleep, but it is an energy giver. You feel 
like, you know, I mean, the body, the body, um, you know, runs on fuel, you know, and runs on, uh, you know, it, it, it has meta, metabolic, um, uh, you call it, uh, uh, refuse in the right way, but it's got metabolic byproducts that are toxic to the body and you got to get rid of all that stuff. And if you keep putting it in faster than you can get rid of it, you get worn out and you get tired and you need to lie down and rest because your body just can't do it anymore. Can't keep up with the pace that you're requiring of it, you know, so it just has to take some time to relax. And a lot of times in our mind, our minds are so wound up about things that we really can't think. We really can't see big pictures. We can't get into abstractions and see big pictures because we're, we're just, we're turning on all the, on all the minutiae and all the little things. And if you can get into a good meditative state where you just let all that go, well, you can wake up refreshed, you know, I don't want to wake up, but you can come back to this reality refreshed. And that's one of the, the needs that we have for sleep. And that's why the, the, this um, out-of-body uh, five minutes every hour is not going to replace sleep, is that it really doesn't disconnect you when you're out of body. You're still there. You've just put it, you're just not paying attention to it. You put it into the background. But when you sleep, you basically disconnect from everything. When you get into delta sleep where you're completely uh, unconscious and it's like hitting the reset button. That's why people say, well, just go to bed, sleep on it. You'll feel better in the morning. Most of the time you will because you get up in the morning and all of that wad of, you know, that, that uh, infinite loop that you were in, spinning around in circles, not getting anywhere, that's gone. You wake up the next day and, and suddenly you're, you're out of that, that loop and you can begin to focus again. So part of the reason for sleep is like, is like the same reason you reboot your computer every once in a while because if you don't, it just starts to not function very well because it just accumulates byproducts of its own you know information metabolism and this stuff starts to build up and if you don't ever let the thing reboot you end up with with dysfunctional things you know things stop your program stop working very well because there's little bits and pieces of code that have come here and there and got caught in the middle and and all that stuff adds up and pretty soon it's dysfunctional all you have to do is reboot anybody will tell you if you're not working if well you know you work on computers First thing you tell somebody that's having computer problems is to reboot because that'll fix about 80% of the problems if you just, uh, you know, get out of the, you know, the, the, uh, the loops and the hysteria that your uh, computer's gotten itself into where it can't think straight because of all the little things that have happened in the last, you know, three weeks since it's been booted the last time. People are like that too. So it's it's good to go to sleep because it, it gives you a reboot when you wake up in the morning. New fresh perspective. Reload all the all the uh, parameters in the operating system and start over. <laughs>